Even on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break, its broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before you. Our God is lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Oh, every knee will bow before the lion. Open up the gates, make way before the King of Peace. Our God who holds the same, is here to set the captives free. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles.
welcome you if you're there we go all right so we'd like to welcome you if you're a visitor with us this morning My name is Matthew and uh, want to invite you to fill out a card that's right in front of you uh, called I think it's connection card maybe something different I forget uh, but if you would fill that out drop that in the basket on your way out as uh, you're offering this morning we'd love to have a record of you being with us I'll be able to pray for you reach out to you and uh, see if there's anything we can do for you. So a few things going on. Uh, this, uh, this, here we go. So the, uh, the end of the month is Halloween. And as an outreach to our community to be able to uh, reach into the neighborhoods at which many of us live, to be able to um, share and really build relationships with neighborhoods and, and help one another uh, be able to reach our community. Uh, we're having a, a ministry called Lighthouses uh, on Halloween. And so the way it works is uh, grouped within the community at, at a variety, four different houses. Uh, a group will, will come together from our church uh, that will be tasked with handing out candy, water, popcorn, and, and talking to people who come by. Uh, to illuminate the area, to light uh, the front yard, and to invite anyone who's coming by uh, into the light to be able to love on them, to give free these just free items of, of food uh, to them for the opportunity of talking, building a relationship, getting to know, and, and sharing Christ with them. Uh, you, can, you can get so much done in just a few moments, just a few minutes. And so the, the object is to share Christ, to embody and to share who Christ is, and to be able to also give opportunity for next week, the week after, of those who live in those neighborhoods to be identified and then to reach out to their community. And so uh, that is, that's coming up at the end of this month. And so part of that, uh, there's a lot of people, hopefully a lot of people walking around, and will there be a, there'll be a need for candy. And so if you would, if you'd be able to donate some candy, go grab every time you go to Sam's or Walmart or Publix, grab an extra bag of candy and then drop it off in the basket that's in the foyer uh, through, through this month is a great way to, to soften that. I look at the candy walking through Walmart and think, this is insane, $20 for a bag of candy. It's just, so anyway, soften that, uh, that uh, if you would just, Bring some candy, drop that in the basket uh, in, the, in the way back in the, the foyer. So a way to take part and to serve as we are collecting that. So for lighthouses. All right, so next week, Sunday night, the 16th, uh, we'll be having, that is next week, isn't it? Next week, okay, I'll have a calendar in front of me. So next week, uh, that Sunday night, we will be uh, preparing for lighthouses. And so want to invite you, uh, if you want to take part, to come to this this time on the 5th, on the 6th at 5 p.m. Uh, over in the gym. We'll be preparing packing bags, preparing things that will go out, and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about what it'll look like. We'll talk about what house you'll be at, and we'll pray over the time and, and kind of begin preparing for the 31st and for this so nothing is a surprise. Uh, there will be surprises, but as best as we can to prepare for for this opportunity that we are all as we we know where we'll go and we'll know what to expect and we'll divvy up jobs and all those things. And so that is the 16th, uh, this next Sunday evening, 
looking forward to lighthouses. Also, uh, another business meeting, more business to attend to on uh, October 16th following uh, our AM gathering together. And then I think we're memorizing scripture next. Yes, here we go. So, uh, fantastic few verses in Deuteronomy 6. So, the Shema, the, uh, the bit of scripture Jewish people would memorize and recite over and over again. Uh, let's recite this, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, and think about it a minute. All right? So, if you would, out loud, let's read through it, recite it once. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. The Lord is one. He's not divided. He is one. There is one God. Any other, any other who professes divinity, who professes a place of authority, is mere, is nothing, is not a God. There's only one. There's only one God, and he is our God. We can claim him. It's an incredible reality that the one God who created all things desires that we would know him, to be identified with a people the people that he has called, that he has called out of darkness through his son, Jesus. It's a marvelous, miraculous thing that I think we often forget, the very reality that God desires to be known and that he allows that we could call him our own. And that is only in Christ by the work of what Jesus has done on our behalf to pay our debt of sin, to atone and pay and destroy death. Wonderful, wonderful news. So let's, uh, let's pray. Thanking this, the Lord our God, and continue in worship. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you. Thank you, God, that you are the Lord. You share that title with no other. There are not semi-demigods. There's not anything or anyone that compares. But you are the Lord and authority of all things, and you are one who has promised, who has spoken, who's revealed himself to us. Miraculously spoken into our world to reveal who you are. God, thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us and in a way that we can understand. So, Father, would you reveal who you are to us this morning? May we hear from you in your word. May, Lord, may we be able to make this same claim. You are our Lord, our God, that you you have promised and you will keep your promises to us, and we know it. And so, Father, would you lead us this morning? Remind us of your faithfulness, of your goodness, and of your grace. That, Lord, our response would be to love you with all our mind, all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, God. That we would love you and obey you. As the good God that you are. And so, Father, would you be with us this morning? Would you, Lord, be with uh, the, the various things that are coming up? That, Lord, we would 
we would respond to the opportunities before us. And Lord, we would do so in an effort to love you, in an effort to love others, in an effort to see, Lord, you glorified among those around us. That the light of the gospel, Lord, would illuminate the darkness in this world and in our community, and that other people would come to know you and to trust fully in you, to love you with all their heart, all their mind, and all their strength. We thank you and ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we continue in worship.
Father, you are holy. The only one who is holy. God, you are good. You're gracious. You're loving and you're kind. You are righteous and you are just. And we are so thankful. goodness and kindness, you sent your son to be the sacrifice, to be the atonement, to be the substitution that we needed so that we might be able to glorify you for all eternity so that your justice will be satisfied. So Lord, thank you for that gift. Father, I pray that as Billy comes to bring the word, God, that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, that we will leave this building better equipped to be your church. God, that we can leave and love others well because of your love that you've given us. We'll be able to love others well. So Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the ability to come and worship together. faith family. <clears throat> Administrative note right off the bat, message is going to contain five parts. Um, after the fourth, we'll enjoy and, and celebrate the Lord's communion, supper. So don't leave. It's the fifth. Thank you. Thank you for this morning. You know, what's that saying? Um, the proof is in the pudding. Proof is in the pudding. When we think about the gospel, sharing the gospel, or for you to phrase it in a question, what must one do to receive this gospel, which is the good news? Right? That's the question that's recorded quite a bit in, in Scripture. You know, what must I do to be saved? Think about the gospel, the good news of, of salvation. It is that. It is much, much more. We focus on, I think, one part appropriately, and I think we may miss another part exception of maybe once definitely a year um, but Romans 10 says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved so uh, uh, some stanzas in that second verse or that second song that 
that Alex sung spoke about that resurrection of Christ. Think about the resurrection, which is part of that good news. Yes, there's salvation. Yes, there's atonement for sin. But this resurrection. Sometimes I miss that resurrection all too often. I don't contemplate. I don't think about it. Here, centrality of Scripture, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be. So today's is rather ambitious, but I think needed because it's so large. Uh, and Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church is that resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And the dead is in two parts. The first resurrection and the second resurrection. So before we get to the main text, it's going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And yes, in its entirety. But I'm going to speak quickly. So I'm easing into this. Then I'm going to hit the, hit the fast forward. But before we get to 15, what has, been, what has Paul been talking about? You don't need to be there, but if you want to go ahead and I'll give it a little bit of time for you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just recap what the first 14 chapters are about. Chapter 1 deals with division. Division and who, following who, word who, Paul and Apollos. It deals with the wisdom. The wisdom of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. Chapter 2, Christ, Christ crucified. The wisdom, the revelation through the Holy Spirit. Third, the division yet again, bringing Paul and Apollos that have that is created and still talked about here. Also the body being the temple, the building of God. Fourth, the ministry of the apostles. Fifth, getting into some pragmatic ways that idolatry is revealed. Self-idolatry, but then idolatry of the cultural, you know, immoralities, behaviors, and how it's affected the church and the church's response to that and how it's that they should deal with that. The sixth is the setting of disputes in the church. Seventh, dealing with some more of those pragmatic things that flow from the heart condition, the belief, or marriage, sexual relationship, temptations, marriage, widow, divorce, life with an unbeliever, faith, chapter, idols, and offering. Leading up into that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. Chapter nine, while being a servant of apostle, surrendering his rights, his benefits, and blessings. Chapter 10, warning of idolatry, using Israel as an example, saying that these things were written, what was written, some of the New Testament scriptures were written, and that occurred for your benefit, the church's benefit. Also in chapter 10, permissibility and profitability of all things. Chapter 11, traditions and teachings, roles of men, women in the church, and the Lord's Supper. Chapter 12, dealing with spiritual gifts, the source, the reasons for those. Who's the recipient of those? Continuing in chapter 13 and 14, love versus the manifestations of the Spirit. Chapter 14, tongues, prophecy, and the pursuit of love and the order of worship. There we get chapter 1 through 14. So as we lead off into chapter 15, we need to be reminded that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, proof, correction, training, and righteousness. Why? So that. Remember from my last time up here, that purpose clause statement, so that. This is the reason for that. 
all scripture breathed out by God for those four things. Why? So that we'll be equipped. Be adequate for every good work. And that's the work of belief, the work of repentance, the work of faith, and the work of response. Grace isn't opposed to work. Grace isn't opposed to Grace isn't opposed to work, it is opposed to effort. I think I got that right. But anyway, so let's read. I'm going to read through this kind of fast. If you follow along, I'm going to be reading from the New American, or excuse me, English Standard Version. Beginning in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in Christ, but in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to the God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all things, all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjective, Subject to the Son, the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and do not go on sinning. 
for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. But some will ask, how are the dead are raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he chooses, and to each kind of its seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, and another kind for animals, another kind for birds, another kind for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and the glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that was first, but the natural and then spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As with the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also those are who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell this to you, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law But thanks be to God who gives us the glory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your neighbor, your labor is not in vain. Heavenly Father, Lord, cause ears to hear your word. Lord, give us a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. Let us love you with all of our our being, and all of your grace that it gives us. Let's ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I do admit that that was longer than usual, but of needed. Because like I mentioned in the very beginning, the resurrection, God resurrecting Christ is so important, and I often miss it. We often miss it. Except for Resurrection Sunday? Perhaps. So as I read through that, that passage of chapter 15, I began to you know, kind of look at the way that it flows, how it's or- organized. But then there was one word that continued to come up. It came up four or five times specifically, and then there was another version of it that was used um, that came up a couple more times. But that was vain, vain. What does it mean to be vain? Well, not to be vain, but if something is vain, it's without profit, it's without use. And that's part of Paul when he writes that he 
that his desire is that he's saying it's not just him because remember all scripture is breathed out by God. So in essence, it's God through Paul saying, I want to make sure you're not believing in vain, that your belief is not useless. So two contrary points, vanity or fruitfulness. So I'll, my attempt is to, like I mentioned earlier, have five points. It's five utilizations of the word vain, belief, grace, preaching, faith, have communion. I'll cover the last. So that's kind of the order. I'll go through. I'm going to define this and then try to illustrate it as well. So if you look at that first part about belief, not a vain belief, but a fruitful one. So according to scripture, you know, Paul says, you know, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, which you're being saved, holding fast to the word I preached, unless you believe in vain. So belief, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. That word is logos. So in essence, we could say it like this. If you hold fast to the Christ that I preached to you. Later on in a couple of verses, he'll say that Christ was crucified according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scripture. So it's those two points, and I'm going to spend a lot of time maybe leaning towards rightfully that rest of that text, it's the resurrection of Christ, and the resurrection of the believer. So if you look at those, those aspects that make up belief, it's according to verse 1, what you received. So receiving, here it's what you received. So if we were looking to receive something, you know, there's two parts of theology that break up, you know, reception or belief. You know, there's revelation would be another word to receive. General revelation and a special revelation. So here, verse 34, says, for some have no knowledge. But then we remember, why do they not have knowledge? Well, that general revelation, according to Romans chapter 1, says that God's power and attributes are clearly known, so they're without excuse. So there is this general revelation, but yet here Paul is saying to the Corinthian church that they, unbelievers who have believed in vain, don't have that knowledge. Why? We'll get to that a little bit later. So that re revelation or receiving, that's the doctrine of special revelation. Next, in which you stand, stand or maintain you know, to, as a position, a position of what? Being justified, justified. And if in verse 20, 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is in futile and you're still in your sins. So that's kind of the negative aspect, that, that logical flow that Paul's writing about here. But that stand, standing what? The fact that your sins are atoned for, are covered. So that doctrine of justification. Next, he says, by which you are being saved. Doctrine of salvation, right? Verse 20 says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23, but each to his own order. Christ the first fruits, then has coming those who belong to Christ. Being saved from Christ is being adopted to his family in that sense. Next, it says, if you hold fast. So it's kind of this conditional clause, this if and if possible or as it's so. So if you hold fast to the word. So holding fast, kind of the idea of to hold, but then 
or it's being effectual. Paul writes to the Philippian church that you hold fast the word, but it's not to hold as if not to keep it or share it, but it's hold as if to extend it, let it be effectual. We'll cover that a little bit more. So in terms of that progression, that holding with the progression, it's a process of the other you know, theological word is sanctification. So within that, holding fast, you know, Paul is referring to this concept that we refer to sometimes now as the doctrine of sanctification. Verse 31 of this chapter 15 says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ our Lord, I die every day. So sanctification begins on a daily aspect. Likewise, in his charge of the following verse, wake up from your drunken stupor or be sober-minded as in right and do not go on sinning. So repentance is an aspect of sanctification. So it's not thinking about I was saved, but yet my life is demonstrative of faith and repentance, which is two parts of sanctification and growing. So again, to recap, belief has those components in it. It's illustrated in there, the belief, the components are the receiving, the standing, the being saved, the holding fast. So while it's mentioned in terms of kind of a negative believing in vain, I would say the fruitful belief is and are those things. So if you can... In my reading, or maybe you're scrolling, think about where the, the next aspect of something's mentioned in vain. It's in verse 10. I want to draw your attention to that. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. So it's two types of, of grace, or that's specifically mentioned, the, the grace of God. But then Paul continues to write, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God within me. So there's this, this, this two-part. Likewise, in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, he says, work out your own salvation with fear, it is with, with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if we look at this grace, this aspect of grace in chapter 15 being a work of God, where do we see that? Chapter 2 or excuse me, verse 2, by which you are being saved. You're saved by how? Works or grace? For grace you've been saved, right? It's Ephesians. God's work is, so it saves. God's work is evidential. And where Paul writes in verse 5 through 8, that he appeared to Cephas, the 12, the 5,000, the apostles, to James, and then to Paul. So God's work is evidential, it manifests. God's work of grace is effectual. It says in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace is forgiveness, is a component of forgiveness. Verse 17 it says, if Christ has not been raised, then you're still in your sins. So a component of God's grace in sending his son, his son obeying the father, taking that cup of wrath, there is forgiveness in God's grace. Verse 34, God's grace is convicting. And that admonishment, wake up, you're drunk in stupor, or wake up and be sober-minded. So there should be a point of rec recognition of conviction. Perhaps we haven't been clear in our thinking. We've been distracted. God's work of grace changes 
It changes us. We shall, verse 51, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Changed in what? In the terms of the perishable putting on the imperishable. The mortal putting on immortal. But then even before that, Paul says, I am what I am. But then he even says, referring back to his previous life, that he persecuted the church. So when God's grace on that Damascus road came to him, and in those years it followed, he was a changed man. We should be a changed man, or woman, or child. God's grace gives victory. Towards the end there, thanks be to God who gives us the victory of our gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's work of grace is those things. So here are a couple of Paul, Paul's grace, where he says there in the verses ten through eleven. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder then, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believe. So God's work of effectual grace is manifest in the proclamation, the the preaching, the sharing, the talking, and the obedience The work is also dynamic. God's grace is dynamic. And this is at the very end of, of the, the chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So it's God's grace that's working in Paul and the beloved brethren, therefore believers. Dynamic in terms of it's the catalyst, the steadfast, the grace, the immobility, and the abounding in the work. talked about God's grace that it would not be in vain nothing that the Lord God does is in vain but it became effectual as Paul records that writes that, shares that with the Corinthian church and then also it is captured for us today so in order to, to not have that vain grace on our part there is that response, that receiving, that standing firm, you know, verse 1 and 2 that holding fast. So that's two of the points. Fourth, or the third, you know where that, that comes up? Verse 14. The next two, the third and the fourth is right here. And speaking about the resurrection from the dead, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So the first part, preaching, vain preaching. Well, for one, let's kind of define what preaching is. Preaching is two parts. So it's the act, it's the proclamation, but it's also the content and the substance. So it's the act and the content. So what's the content of Paul's preaching here, if you will, in chapter 15? the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Takes up most of the passage. If we can recall the, I'm going to reference a couple of passages here. One from 1 Thessalonians 4.16, speaking of the resurrection of the dead in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a loud 
with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And it goes on, then those who, us who remain will be called up together and will be with him. So this resurrection that Paul is talking about here, resurrection of the door, it's based on the fact that Christ has been raised, and that occurred. So they often say, or they're saying is the truth corresponds with the reality. So Paul makes a strong case, logical case, verifiable case for the resurrection of Christ in here. So therefore, when we look at passage and recall passages about the resurrection of Christ, and therefore what he says about the resurrection through Paul to the Thessalonian church, that's our resurrection, our hope. So yes, we can hope like we do on the first part of this gospel, good news, salvation, but then we also focus on the hope of the resurrection. So this first resurrection occurs in at least two stages. So that's the first stage. It is, it is appearing in the clouds that he calls the resurrection of the dead. Revelation 20, verse 4 and 5, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those, who, were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of the Lord and for, their, and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. How did they come to life? They were resurrected. When does this occur? After the millennial reign, the doctrine of end times, eschatology. They came to life. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they came to life after when? They were martyred during the tribulation years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So speaking of the first, this is the first resurrection. The second resurrection, Revelation 20, a little bit further down in chapter 20, verses 11 through 14, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. For from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead. So to give up the dead, that is the resurrection of the dead. That is the second resurrection. That's kind of the content of this proclamation, this message, the resurrection of Christ and therefore the hope of the resurrection from the dead for the believer. We'd also look at the message, but then also the content of the first part. You know, what is that preaching? What is it, what is it made of? Kind of like defined, but then also illustrated. In the same fashion, it's repetitive. Paul says, I remind you, or I make it known to you. Again, it's repetitive. Verse 1, 2, and then 3, it's orderly. The gospel which I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, you're being saved, if you hold fast. It, uh, verse 5 through 8, so that preaching or that proclamation, it, it's applicable to everybody. It's diverse. You know, it's to Cephas. Then the 12, 
the 500, James, the rest of the apostles, Paul. So it's to a wide audience. Verse 3 and 4, fruitful preaching is scriptural. Paul writes in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scripture. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So fruitful preaching, act and content, is based in the truth of scripture. It's also logical. And as much as we can understand and comprehend, chapter or verses 14 through 20 deal with a large logical statement. And I'll boil it down to this in terms of a logical statement. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching and your faith is in vain. Christ has been raised from the dead. So what's the conclusion, the law conclusion? Our preaching and faith is not in vain because Christ has risen from the dead. Fruitful. Preaching offers hope. Verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Paul writes it in the negative sense, if in Christ we have hope only in this life, we're most to be pitied, but we shouldn't be because there is a resurrection, so therefore there is hope now, but then there's also hope for eternal. Fruitful preaching should be convicting. Sometimes we need to hear the wake up. Stop doing these things. Flee from these things. We need to be challenged. We need to be approached. He says in verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor, be sober-minded, as it is right, so be reminded what is right, and do not go on sinning. So uh, it should bring about conviction. But then also be specific. He continues to say, for some have no knowledge, like I said earlier, in God, and I say this, Paul does, to your shame. So it's specific. So while it may not be every message applicable to everybody, it is specific to a person in this context. Fruitful preaching compels. Verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So it's compelling an action, a response. It shouldn't just leave us with knowledge that puffs up. But yet it should be effectual. Kind of like Alex, when he, when he prays after the worship song, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, the spiritual things, the truth of things, not get distracted, that it should compel us, what? In essence, he didn't say it, but to be fruitful. Don't live a vain life Monday through Saturday. Be fruitful. God is glorified in this, in what? John 14 and 15 that you produce much fruit, that you don't leave fruit on the vine, that you don't just hold it within yourself because that's tantamount to self-idolatry or laziness. We're called, Paul specifically, God specifically calls some to, to preach, but then we're called to proclaim. So I say preaching is an act, but it's a proclamation. So there is a preacher by vocation, but then each of us, called to role of ambassadors. So within that, there is a proclamation, a sharing in its context, in its relationship, in its one-on-one. So the first was vain belief, a fruitful belief. 
vain grace or fruitful grace, uh, vain preaching versus a fruitful preaching. The fourth point, not a vain faith. Sometimes belief and faith um, somewhat interchangeably. It's hard for me to kind of define, but sometimes I think about belief is it is the faith, but yet it's the, the response to it. It's not just that, and faith isn't just a response, but it's also what's received. You know, Hebrews 11 sums it up clearly because it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's the assurance of things hoped for. So in the context of chapter 15, what is faith? It's the assurance of the resurrection. Based on the verifiable eyewitness account of the resurrection of Christ and his proclamation about the dead in Christ will rise, So there is that assurance, even though it yet has not occurred. And it's the conviction of things hoped for, but not yet seen, not yet completed. So so there's two parts of of being saved. You know, there is, you know, there is the atonement for sin, yes. But we still live in the presence of sin. Sometimes we still deal with that struggle of the power of sin. So it may be hard for us to contemplate the atonement for sin if I still sin, if I'm still involved in sin, I'm hurt by sin. But this eyewitness, the testimony of the resurrection of Christ, the other part of that, the atonement for sin, Scripture says that Christ died not only for our sins, but sins of the world. So there's an atonement for sin for the world, right, according to Scripture. Romans 10 says, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So there's this other part of believing in the resurrection. That also is kind of hard for us to see because we don't see it. But yet for Cephas, the 12, the apostles, the 500, then Paul, did they see the resurrection? Yes, they did. So we can trust, often we trust and we take for granted, we take the truth of what we experience out there based on what? Sometimes hearsay. But oftentimes it's the testimony of a witness. In a legal sense, that seals the deal. That's the proof. If there is one witness, but there is multiple witnesses. And here, how many witnesses were there? All right, quick math. 500 plus 12, all the apostles, I don't know how many that is. There's a lot, right? There's a lot of eyewitnesses. And then you got the inerrancy and the consistency of Scripture. It talks about that. So defining faith, and I use Romans 11. Faith is a work of God, and it's a work of man. In that chapter 11, there's the, the response, the offering. But then there's the work of God that, that brought up a lot, uh, Enoch. He called him up. By faith, Sarah conceived. She didn't have the ability to conceive. Yeah, there was this physical part that took place, but nevertheless, God worked. So this demonstration of faith isn't just a a thing that's kind of mystical, kind of just a conceptual thing, a theoretical thing, but it's an actual thing. It's an actual thing. It's demonstrative. 
So here in chapter 15, verse 9 and 10, But by the grace of Paul writes, for I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, he, he says, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. So in terms of reflection of that faith, There was the experience, the encounter. There was this special revelation that took place that, that did a work in Paul. It brought about a change. Yes, he could still remember that, but yet he knew that he was different. And he writes other places in Corinthians. If any man is in Christ, or if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. In a spiritual creation, in a present, but then also in a future sense, raised imperishable, raised immortal. So, a fruitful faith, it gives confidence. And Paul says in the 31st verse, he says, I, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ, I die every day. So it gives him the confidence to pick up his cross, to carry it daily, that he, if you will, he balances this, his, his action, his response on a day-to-day basis, but yet it doesn't keep him there, that he looks to this future hope, the assurance of things unseen, the conviction that he doesn't yet know, even though he encountered Christ. So it gives confidence. But then it gives that future confidence, verse 52 through 55. In a moment in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, but we shall be changed. So we're going to enter a time, and it's not explicitly mentioned here, but this is part of the stages that Jesus shares with the disciples as they draw on that evening of his crucifixion for the Lord's Supper. So I invite Alex up and our, our men to prepare to distribute the elements. say not, doesn't mention it in here, but yet in, in those references that Paul makes, he alludes to that.